2: Cast your mind back to the end of 2020. The COVID 19 pandemic was almost a year old. People across the Northern Hemisphere were facing up to their first winter with the virus and yet more lockdowns. But then, at the start of December, an early Christmas miracle.
1: The UK is the first Western country to start vaccinating people against the coronavirus. It's the first in the world to begin mass inoculations with the Pfizer vaccine.
2: Margaret Keenan became the first person in the world to receive an approved COVID-19 vaccine. For some, this marked the beginning of the end of the pandemic. The vaccine she got was designed by the German biotechnology company, BioNTech. It was manufactured by Pfizer, the American pharmaceutical giant. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine used a novel technology based on mRNA, a type of molecule that carries instructions within the body's cells. Having now proved itself as one of the most powerful weapons against the coronavirus, where does the mRNA revolution go from here? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Cha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll be talking about mRNA vaccines and treatments with one of the pioneers of the technology, Uğur Sahin. Not so long ago, Ugur and his wife, Oslem Türeci were working as oncologists in Germany, treating patients day-to-day but trying to dream up therapies in their spare time. In 2008, they set up BioNTech and 12 years later, during the first year of the pandemic, they became household names when they designed the world's first COVID-19 vaccine. That vaccine was a smash hit But the story of mRNA is only just beginning. BioNTech is already looking beyond COVID-19. We'll be exploring what that future holds. Natasha Loder is here, The Economist's health policy editor. Happy New Year, Natasha. Happy New Year, Alok. How are you? I am fine. And you've just interviewed Uga Sahin. Why were you interested in talking to him now?
0: Well, mRNA as a technology for making medicines has really gone from strength to strength since the early days of the pandemic when we've started tinkering with it. And it's just a very promising technology, one that could not only help us invent vaccines that we've only dreamt of making before, but also to improve the vaccines that we currently have. And also, it may help us tackle cancer as well, which is another thing that I wanted to look into.
2: Well, we'll talk about cancer in just a moment. I mean, it's really exciting. But first, let's just focus on the COVID-19 pandemic and its vaccines.
0: Yeah, so when I interviewed Uga, we had a really interesting conversation about what's next for pandemic and COVID-19 vaccines and how they're going to need to be tweaked in response to new strains and also about the prospect of a universal coronavirus vaccine.
2: Okay, well, let's start with the first point. Uga's company, BioNTech, has created new vaccines that target, for the first time, the Omicron strain of the coronavirus, which is running rampant around the world at the moment. Many people would have had that vaccine as a booster shot. Can you tell me a bit more about it?
0: Well, the first wave of vaccines that we had were all designed to provoke our immune system to respond to a single virus, that was the Wuhan strain. And all these vaccines that were created and that we had, whether it was the mRNA vaccines or the adenoviral vaccines, they're all monovalent. So they just targeted this one strain of the virus. Well, a bivalent vaccine will provoke an immune response to two different strains. And a lot of vaccines work this way. The flu vaccine is actually a trivalent vaccine targeted to three different strains, typically. Now, when I spoke to Uga, I asked him whether the COVID-19 vaccines will end up being a bit like the way we use flu vaccines today. And that would be where each year we'll update the vaccine with the strains that we expect to be in circulation. And he told me that actually these vaccines will have to be continually updated as new variants emerge.
1: We have learned in the last two years that the virus continues to change. Sometimes these are subtle changes which do not require an update. But with Omicron, we had a significant change of the virus and virus spike protein uh, so that the existing vaccine is not any the optimal choice and it is wise to adapt the vaccine sequence according to the new variant sequence and that happened this year. And we see that this changing of the virus continues. It is part of the virus evolution and there's no reason to assume that this will stop now. This will continue to happen. It will continue to reinvent itself again and again. And that would mean that we need to come up with adapted vaccines.
0: With the flu vaccines, a group chooses three variants and the vaccine makers design a vaccine like that. How difficult is it for you to decide which strain to
1: use in your
0: vaccine for COVID?
1: This is not a trivial task. So what we need to understand is which virus strains are those which are the most prominent ones. But we have already seen now that depending on the continent, some strains may be more frequent than others. But what is even more important is to understand not only what is the dominant one now, but also to understand what could be the dominant ones in three months, six months, or nine months. And this is something not trivial to predict. We can use machine learning. We can use techniques like which strains are growing in numbers, how is the acceleration of the growth rates, what are the sequences, and how much the strains might have advantage about other strains. These are pieces of information that are required. The prediction of variants is an emergent science, but I'm sure that we are going to become better and better in this discipline. The flu vaccine community is also making its decisions about six months before the season. And often the decisions are right. And sometimes the decisions are not right because in the time in between, new variants emerge.
0: When can we say that the pandemic is over?
1: It's a definition of the pandemic. So a pandemic means that you have a virus which is evolving and which is not only evolving regionally, but it is spreading worldwide. And this is still the case. So with COVID-19, we are in a repeated pandemic. We had first the Wuhan pandemic, then we get the alpha variant pandemic, the beta variant Semi pandemic on the African continent. Then the Delta became a global pandemic and Omicron is now a global pandemic. And even the Omicron sublineages are global pandemics. So we do not yet have some sort of a endemic situation where certain variants are focused on certain regions, but it is still and rapidly ongoing sequential pandemic of different strains.
0: But I mean, by that definition, wouldn't the flu be an ongoing pandemic?
1: Flu is more seasonal, particularly in the autumn and winter season. And we have seen now with Omicron that there are every three months new waves. And therefore, this still requires some time to become a seasonal event. We have to see whether this is going to happen at all, or do we need to be prepared that even in summer, or in spring, we have new strains evolving fast and spreading.
0: Last year in 2022, you said you worked with Pfizer to test a universal
1: coronavirus vaccine.
0: How did you design this and what are you hoping to be able to
1: achieve? Yes, we are. Uh, the immune protection against coronavirus is driven by two components of the immune system by antibodies and by T cells. We understand that the virus is able to rapidly overcome antibody responses by mutating the regions of the spike proteins that are recognized by antibodies. But the virus has difficulties to overcome T cell recognition because the epitopes recognized by T cells are different in each individual. And this gives us the opportunity now to come up with a vaccine that has a T cell component which is 100% or almost 100% conserved among all strains. So we call this universal T-cell string vaccine. We have started the clinical trial for evaluation of this T-cell string. And the rationale behind that is that we learned early in the pandemic that some patients were able to clear the virus without having neutralizing antibodies. And this patient's had uh, some sort of T cells that appear to recognize other parts of the virus other than the spike protein. And we have now designed a vaccine which included also this parts of the virus to provide a broader and ideally universal protection.
0: How long do you think the development timeline for this universal vaccine is going to take? I mean, they're difficult vaccines to make.
1: There are different vaccines. Uh, Usually vaccine development takes several years until something is approved, but we are in an ongoing pandemic. So depending on what regulators want to see, this could happen in 12 to 15 months. But this is something where, for example, a vaccine might be approved with evidence of reduced infection. And after rollout in a real-world study, additional data can be generated for example, for the benefit of protection against severe disease. This is something that we are discussing currently with the regulators.
0: But presumably you don't imagine that these universal vaccines will last forever, or do you? I mean, do you imagine that you would need to get boosted regularly?
1: This universal T-cell vaccine has one general idea. It's not about completely avoiding vaccine boosters. It's about avoiding that a virus which comes with really completely new change spike protein undermines completely the immunity so that we still have a layer of protection by the T cells that help us, regardless if someone is infected or not, is protected against severe disease. This is an extra security layer that we are building. And we know from T cell responses that T cells can last for many years.
2: That was really interesting from Uger, actually. And and the way he described how future coronavirus vaccines would be made. It, it does sound similar to the global monitoring system that is in place for influenza. Sometimes there's a risk of a discrepancy, and so they might not work as well, but it has to be changed continuously. So it sounds like another one of those. But what I found most interesting about that was your discussion, Natasha, about the universal coronavirus vaccine using the T-cells of the human immune system. Again, another example of the human immune system being incredibly complicated. Can you just explain a little bit about how the T-cell system might be different to the antibodies that we're familiar with? Well, when we talk about vaccines
0: and immunity, we often talk about antibodies, right? And antibodies are the things that we know that we're boosting when we're having our vaccines. We know that they're very useful for fighting infection. And in fact, The reason that older people got vaccinated before the winter is because antibodies don't last long. You can stimulate them in response to a vaccine, but after about three or four months, they're going to start to wane. The immune system has a way of remembering viruses in the longer term, and they use things like T-cells to do this and a different type of immune cells. And so the idea is to create a vaccine that really stimulates these particular bits of the immune system and does so in a way that this memory allows it to recognise a range of coronaviruses. And so what you would do is essentially create a vaccine that would recognise a part of the virus that is found in many different coronaviruses.
2: Amazing. And one assumes, of course, that you could use a similar technology for other viruses too, influenza, uh, I guess, because that has to be changed all the time. If there was a way of doing a T cell vaccine for that, that'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it? But let's draw a line under coronaviruses for now. mRNA vaccines are being used to target other types of infectious diseases as well, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I mean, let me just give you a few highlights. At the moment, one of the viruses that a lot of companies are trying to develop a vaccine for is called respiratory syncytial virus, which is a common infection in really young children and particularly premature infants. It can be very devastating in them. And BioNTech are creating an mRNA vaccine that's actually looking pretty good. And it seems to have a vaccine efficacy of about 82% in this infant group. Influenza, again, we know that influenza vaccines that we take are not particularly effective. We take them anyway. The question is, could an mRNA vaccine actually create a much more effective vaccine? So that's a really interesting question. And again, that would be life-saving. Older people very frequently get um, knocked down by the flu. And then sort of one of the most exciting areas, I think, is in diseases where we've had very little traction, really, when it has come to vaccines or where there's a lot of medical need. And malaria and TB are two that kind of really spring to mind. If you could create a vaccine for these two uh, diseases, it would be transformative and save enormous numbers of lives, millions of lives. And lastly, the big question is, well, can mRNA target HIV. We've been trying to create a vaccine for years and we've failed. So the question is,
2: could we do it with mRNA? Is BioNTech actually looking into all of this stuff? Because I mean, sure, it's not easy to have lots of different vaccines under development. They're not easy things to make.
0: Yeah. BioNTech is cracking along with all of these vaccines, which is another extraordinary thing about this company is just sort of how many vaccines it's working on. But, you know, developing vaccines is an expensive business, particularly when it comes to late-stage trials. When it comes to TB and malaria, these are not lucrative markets or have not been considered so by pharma companies. So when I spoke to Uga, what I really wanted to know was whether BioNTech was prepared to go the distance in testing these vaccines.
1: So first of all, they asked some companies who engage into vaccine development, for example, Glaxo has engaged into the development of malaria vaccines. We have started a malaria vaccine clinical trial end of 2022, and we will continue to develop this vaccine candidates, evaluate them in phase two clinical trials. And if we are confident that it's going to work, we will start uh, registration studies and evaluate how such a vaccine could provide added benefit. To the regions who are severely affected by malaria. So this is a matter of social responsibility, but it's also a matter of providing impact by innovation.
0: But then would you take the vaccines through the phase three trials? Would you actually do those trials?
1: Yes, certainly. That's the plan.
0: What do you think would happen if there were another pandemic in a few years of a different
1: pathogen? This is an excellent question. Actually, we have a number of positive learnings from the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. And one of the learnings is that a vaccine can be developed, including phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical testing within 10 months. But if a vaccine is needed even faster because the new pandemic is a terrible pandemic, then there could also be a room for direct distribution of vaccines this is dependent on the scientific evidence. For example, if vaccines against such pathogens have already been evaluated in other clinical trials, sometimes a pathogen occurs where the community has already experienced that vaccines could help. So, for example, now for coronaviruses, we know vaccines are helpful. And if this is a new coronavirus, I could imagine that a vaccine could be distributed directly after phase one as we are now Considering to supply vaccines directly after adaptation of the vaccine sequence. So, this is something that I believe is possible and would be reasonable in such an emergency case.
0: Fascinating. Are there any infectious diseases where mRNA might not work? I mean, for example, HIV has been a famously difficult target. Might you fail in HIV?
1: Uh, yes, certainly. HIV is extremely challenging because the virus is not only changing from individual to individual, but also is changing within the individual. There is an ongoing evolution. But we have to be aware that what we believe is difficult to solve today may be addressed in a few years. And HIV is controlled by a combination targeting with small, small molecules. And I could imagine that a combination vaccine targeting multiple regions of HIV could also be helpful to provide at least partial protection.
2: So, Natasha, that all sounds incredibly exciting. We've heard a lot there from Ugo about the potential of mRNA. And I'm sure companies like his and, and others will be really driving this stuff forward, really at the beginning of, of quite an incredible discovery age in this field. Can you just give us a, a sense of your personal excitement in this? Because it sounds amazing. It sounds like you could solve everything with this, this new thing, but give us your sense.
0: Well, it reminds me of when we first discovered CRISPR, which was the sort of gene editing technology. And you get this new tool and suddenly you kind of realise you can apply it to a whole bunch of diseases that you've really had trouble targeting before. And that is an exciting time because you come along and you sort of say, well, maybe we'll try it on this disease or that disease. It doesn't mean it will work. But often you can make these breakthroughs. And, you know, medicine is one of the most sort of optimistic areas of science to cover, I would say. It constantly makes me feel happy. I'll
2: say that. Well, let's take that happiness forward and continue being excited in that case. Now, we'll talk more about mRNA technology and its role in cancer a bit later. First, though, you can get more of our news, analysis and explainers by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Now, a recent highlight in the Christmas edition of the paper was a piece published by our very own Natasha here about how nutrition affects mental health. Natasha, how is your mental health after Christmas?
0: Um, My mental health is doing pretty good, and I think it's probably more... More to do with having a nice period of relaxation than what I ate.
2: <laughs> These six Christmas puddings I ate, I'm sure, are going to be affecting me in some way. The Natasha's piece is the perfect read, so go and find it on our website. You can access that and more at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Natasha and I will be back in just a moment. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Babbage, we're exploring the future of mRNA technology. Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, is here with me, and she's been talking to Uga Sahin, the boss of BioNTech, an early pioneer of mRNA technology. Now, Natasha, you mentioned that mRNA was first devised as a therapy for cancer a long time ago. And in fact, this is the history of Hugo Sahin. How would you use mRNA to tackle cancer?
0: Well, so cancer is where you get this runaway growth of cells in the body. And this is actually more common than we may realise. But what happens is the body's immune system keeps these issues in check and gets rid of these rapidly growing cells. But sometimes the cancer gets the upper hand, and that's where we develop cancer. So the idea of immunotherapy has been to stimulate the immune system to attack cancers. And immunotherapy took off a number of years ago, particularly when we found out we could help to activate T-cells into killing cancers using a drug known as a checkpoint inhibitor. And these drugs have been quite revolutionary in treating a wide range of cancers. But there was this other idea as well that actually maybe we could stimulate immunity in a different way with a vaccine against a cancer. We haven't actually had much success over the years with this idea. But it's a field which is rapidly coming of age. mRNA has been a technology that looks like it could do the job quite well. And the idea is to create a vaccine that's more personalised and will target the immune system to one's own particular cancer.
2: That does sound incredible in theory, but just can you help listeners understand how cancers are treated today and therefore how an mRNA-based system might be different?
0: At the moment when you get cancer, there are a number of kinds of options on the table. You've got surgery to cut out the cancer. If it's possible to remove it, there may be chemotherapy, radiotherapy. And then you've got various drug options. You can have precision medicines, which may be targeted to a particular molecular signature in the cancer. And then, of course, you've got these immunotherapies, these checkpoint inhibitors. And sometimes people will use many lines of therapy. They may have surgery followed by immunotherapy. They may have surgery and chemo. And so, you know, often you will find that these therapies are layered and it will really depend on the nature of the cancer you've got, how early it's been detected, how much it has spread, and also where the cancer is found and its sort of type. And mRNA vaccines are something that we may find ourselves using after surgery perhaps, to reduce the rate of recurrence of a particular cancer, or it could be used in combination. And we've been hearing really exciting results from Merck with their mRNA vaccine. They've used that in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor in a skin cancer melanoma, and it's very promising. The cancer vaccine, when given with this checkpoint inhibitor, reduces the rate of recurrence by 44%. And remember also that that checkpoint inhibitor is also a very effective line of therapy as well. When I spoke to Ugra cancer, he told me they're looking at using mRNA in patients who've just undergone surgery to ensure the cancer doesn't return.
1: If you provide a treatment, if 90% of the tumor cells are responding, the remaining 10% could regrow and the tumor becomes resistant. We are talking about existing tumors, even a small tumor consists of hundreds of millions of tumor cells. And the question is, what can we do with immunotherapy to eradicate these tumor cells so that there is no regrowth after treatment, for example, after surgery? Patients who are undergoing surgery in most cases, in 70% of cases in many diseases are cured. But depending on the disease, 20 to 50% of patients have a relapse several years after the surgery. And then if they have a relapse, a metastatic relapse, then the likelihood that they are dying because of the cancer is high. So our goal is to develop Immunotherapies, particularly mRNA vaccines, to target tumor cells that remain after surgery to ensure that there are no relapses coming from these tumors.
0: So, just tell me briefly a little bit about how you would create what seemed to be a personalized vaccine that would target those cancer cells that are left after surgery.
1: The idea of the personalized vaccine is it follows the concept if every tumor is different and if every patient has a different type of molecular signature of the tumor, why don't we treat patients according to the signatures? We have shown that this concept works very effectively in preclinical models and we have started clinical trials in 2014. We have shown that Indeed, with this approach, we can activate the immune system of individual patients specifically against their tumors. And we have shown clinical activity in a few tumors. We have data in melanoma patients. We have generated data on pancreatic cancer. We have now uh, new data in triple negative breast cancer patients. And we believe that this type of approach might be suitable for many types of cancers particularly after surgery, to ensure that the immune system recognises the remaining tumour cells and is able to screen the body for this remaining tumour cells and eradicate this tumour cells.
0: The cancer vaccines will presumably be used alongside other therapies that we have, whether it's surgery or checkpoint inhibitors or personalised medicines, have you thought a lot about the costs of making a personalized therapy? Because a lot of cancer therapies are very expensive. Anything that's personalized would also increase that cost. How can you do this in a reasonable way?
1: This is an excellent question. So in, in principle, the costs for making a vaccine have multiple components. And we know that for personalized cancer vaccines, we need a relatively little amount of mRNA. So that means the raw material cost, that is not the limiting factor. The limiting factor, of course, is the whole process, getting the tumor sample, sequencing the tumor sample, identifying the mutations, then the small manufacturing scale, because every patient requires its own vaccine, and then quality testing of the single vaccine and shipping it. So when we have started this approach, the cost for preparing a vaccine were in the range of $250,000 for a single individual patient. But if we ask the question, what can we do to reduce the cost? It's all about computational solutions and automation. So if we could build an automated process where the directly sequenced data are used to instruct robots to start the synthesis of the vaccine, If we can reduce the volume for vaccine manufacturing, since we only need little amounts of mRNA, we can dramatically reduce the cost. And we believe that this type of personalized treatments become affordable. And we believe that this is going to be the future of cancer treatment because we are getting more and more information about cancers and get something which could provide a higher benefit than a standard treatment.
0: So what you're saying is that you could see a future where cancer vaccines, personalized ones, maybe a series of them could actually even replace the sorts of medicines that we're giving today like checkpoint inhibitors and targeted medicines. Is is that the implication?
1: Definitely. So we believe that at least in certain disease states, personalized vaccines might be superior to existing treatments. We have already now seeing that, for example, checkpoint blockade in certain indications are replacing chemotherapy because they are better than chemotherapy. So we need to be open that immunotherapy not only replaces existing treatments, but even within the immunotherapy, new approaches could
2: replace approaches of the first generation. That was really interesting from Ugo there. But of course, BioNTech isn't the only company working on cancer vaccines, is it? You mentioned one before. Can you just give us a sense of the field, what research is going on out there?
0: So I was talking to the analysts, Sightline, and they said there are about 37 mRNA cancer vaccines in development of which 12 are in clinical trials. And most of these are focused on what we would call hot tumours. And so these are cancers that are easily recognised by the immune system because they have many mutations that the body is able to recognise. These are cancers like melanoma, cancers of the bladder, liver, kidney, head and neck, etc., But what we really want to know and what we don't quite know yet is whether these personalised vaccines are going to help us with these cold tumours. These are cancers of the bowel, the breast, pancreatic, and for me, quite personally, glioblastomas. This is a brain cancer that took my father. And these are cold tumours. They are tumours that the immune system cannot see. And the question is, will these vaccines allow the immune system to see these cancers and finally to
2: attack them. and I'm sure we'll be watching all of that area closely as we cover the development of mRNA vaccines. We've now explored the uses for this technology in infectious diseases and cancer. Is there more? I mean where, where <laughs> yeah. else does the potential go for this?
0: Yeah, there is more. And you know now there's a lot of talk about whether mRNA could help with other conditions, autoimmune conditions, high cholesterol, Dementia, heart disease, and even antibiotic resistance and snake
2: bites. Is there anything it can't do? Uh, maybe Can certain... prime minister or something, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I mean, it does make me think of that old adage, which is that if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. But maybe that's a bit too cynical. So, towards the end of my conversation with Uga, I asked him about the potential of mRNA and what he's most looking forward to.
1: mRNA technology is a tool. And mRNA itself is a natural molecule. It is in almost all of our cells. It is instructing cells to make proteins. And if the proteins are involved in certain pathways, for example, autoimmune disease control or lowering cholesterol, we can interfere with this process by delivering the mRNA. That means what is going to happen in the next years is many, many people will connect existing mechanisms with delivery of mRNA as a tool to interfere with mechanisms, with the idea of preventing disease or curing disease or ameliorating disease. So as we know today, proteins are used for any type of diseases. mRNA approaches will be used to any type of diseases in the coming years
0: this year 2023 beckons with lots of excitement and promise what parts of your business are you looking for the most exciting developments
1: and Innovation ah we are excited about many things this year we have started a number of clinical trials in infectious disease our malaria clinical trial is running our tuberculosis vaccine clinical trial is going to start very soon we have a number of immunotherapies in Oncology indications, having a readout of starting, for example, we are particularly excited about mRNA-encoded antibodies, mRNA-encoded cytokines. We are particularly excited about ongoing collaborations to use personalized vaccines in multiple indications uh, like triple negative breast cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer. So it's many exciting approaches. Uga Sahin, thank you so very much. Thank you, Natasha. It was a great pleasure.
2: Natasha, I have to say that conversation was incredibly exciting, incredibly optimistic, hugely nerdy, which I like. uh, And what a great way to start this year, 2023. Thank you so much for all of that.
0: Yeah, thank you, Alok. And I'm looking forward to, to 2023.
2: We'll be back again next week. Don't forget that Babbage now comes out every Wednesday. Look out for us in The Economist Podcasts feed in your preferred podcast app. There you'll find new episodes of all our shows, including Drum Tower, our new weekly series about China. Fabbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing this week by James Stickland and Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.